you are actually going to hear the third draft of this message. The title, if you have the church app in front of you, says that the message is titled, When You're Seeking a Homeland, You Need to Carry God's Wisdom. That was the first draft of the message, and that's the title that I gave to Beth to put on the app. About Tuesday afternoon, I scrapped that one, and I started heading down a, a different path, developing a, a different message than I had really ever imagined. And then on Friday, I ended up scrapping that one and shifting it up again. You're going to get kind of a hybrid of the last two messages. The second one, I would have titled this, When You're Seeking a Homeland, You Need Courageous Friends. I don't know if you've ever found yourself at a point in your life where you needed a good friend, but most of us have. Now, when I say needing a good friend, you might be thinking to yourself, what exactly does that mean? What kind of a friend is Phil talking about? Well, I really like the way Aristotle would describe that idea. If you have the app open on your phone, this quote is actually on there. Listen to what the old philosopher says. There are therefore three kinds of friendship equal in number to the things that are lovable. Now, those who love each other for their utility do not love each other for themselves, but in virtue of some good which they get from each other. So too with those who love for the sake of pleasure. It is not for their character that men love ready-witted people, but because they find them pleasant. And thus these friendships are only incidental, for it is not as being the man he is that the loved person is loved, but is providing some good or pleasure. Such friendships, then, are easily dissolved. If the parties do not remain like themselves, for if the one party is no longer pleasant or useful, the other ceases to love him. Perfect friendship is the friendship of men who are good and alike in virtue. For those who wish well to their friends, for their sake, are most truly friends. For they do this by reason of own nature and not incidentally. Therefore, their friendship lasts as long as they are good, and goodness is an enduring thing. Further, such friendship requires time and familiarity. As the proverb says, men cannot know each other till they have eaten salt together, nor can they admit each other to friendship or be friends till each has been found lovable and been trusted by each. Those who quickly show the marks of friendship to each other wish to be friends, but are not friends unless they both are lovable and know the fact. For a wish for friendship may arise quickly, but friendship does not. That is a really deep understanding of friendship. Those that want to be a friend to you solely because of utility, which means what they can gain from you, are not friends at all. Those that want to be friends with you solely for the sake of pleasure are not friends at all. They are only there for one purpose. But when we get into deep friendship, we find something completely different. I love the way Aristotle described that. Listen to this again. As the proverb says, men cannot know each other till they have eaten salt together. What a unique way of bringing that all about. Now, most people believe that Aristotle was referencing an old Roman proverb that actually says men cannot know each other unless they have eaten a peck of salt together. Aristotle, in his quote, left out the word peck 
but the old Roman proverb doesn't. So I had to do a little bit of studying to find out exactly what a peck of salt is. I wanted to understand the depth of that statement. So here's what I discovered. A peck during those days was a unit of measurement for dry goods. A peck would have equated to two gallons of salt. Two gallons of salt. So Aristotle is saying that a man cannot really be friends with another man until they have eaten two gallons of salt together. Now, unless you are completely sodium-deprived, it's going to take a while to accomplish that. And that was Aristotle's point. It's going to take a while in order to eat that much salt with another person. That's a lot of shared meals. That's a lot of shared experiences. That's a lot of jerky in the wilderness. That is a lot of time invested in the development of relationship. And salty friends are really what we're after. Salty friends are the ones that are there no matter what's going on. Salty friends remain with us through the good times and the bad. Salty friends bring value to our lives as we bring value to theirs. That's a salty friendship. And it really should be the goal of every person to have salty friendships in your life. Salty relationships that you have traveled many miles with. Salty relationships that you can trust no matter what. They're not just there for what they bring to you. They are there to be with you and you with them. That's a salty relationship. David, King David, certainly knew that. His life was filled with salty relationships. Maybe you've heard of some of those. The most familiar to people that have studied the Bible is the relationship that he had with King Saul's son, Jonathan. It's been taught time and time again. The relationship that these two men built, it was something. It was strong. When they had to part ways, this is what was said. This is 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. The Bible goes on to define the relationship that David had with Jonathan in some amazing personal ways. They would be connected forever because God bound their hearts together. That was a salty relationship. They were bound together through a mutual love and admiration of God. Now, that's the first relationship we hear of in his life. As we go on through Scripture, we get to places like 1 Samuel chapter 23, where David's mighty men are, are described for us. They're listed there. Their names are, are laid right in front of us, and even some of their exploits. It is inspiring to read about David's mighty men. It's the kind of thing that makes your imagination go wild when you start reading the exploits of those relationships in David's life, those salty relationships in David's life. But we're going to have to leave that for another time. There are still other salty relationships that defined who he was. Now, when we talk about his relationship with Jonathan... We are really talking about a time or a season in David's life when his star is on the rise. Things, though they are challenging, 
are really gaining traction for him. He is becoming not just David the shepherd boy or David the servant in the court of Saul. He is becoming King David, already anointed by Samuel. He is on the path that God wants him to be on, and he's doing what he is supposed to do. He is rising in prominence. When we get to the mighty men, he's winning battle after battle after battle on that same path, and those salty relationships are happening for him. I want us to look at a different season in his life, a season that is defined completely different, a season that was dark. He wasn't on the rise. He had fallen. Things were very difficult for him. Dark is the only word that captures it. Personally, he was a mess Everything had fallen apart for him. He had had an affair with Bathsheba, killed her husband, and lived as a hypocrite for months. That was a a huge part of what was happening for him. But it got even worse. His son, his newborn son, died, and his world crumbled. Personally, he was a wreck. His home life was a wreck because of his actions He saw all kinds of different things happen under his own roof. Anger and bitterness were raging. Murder and incest and rape were the words that could be used to define what was happening in David's house. There was a rebellion being led by his own son to dethrone David. He wasn't on the rise. Things were falling and it was dark politically. He had lost the trust and the respect of all the other leaders. They saw that their hero had feet of clay. They knew that that their hero could stumble and fall. And as such, they were distancing themselves from King David. It was dark. It was dark. Yet there were salty friends in his life. I want to introduce you to some of them this morning. The odds say that you've never heard of them, or if you have you have not remembered them. So if you would, I want you to join me in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Here's a little bit of the backstory. David's son Absalom has led a conspiracy against David. Through political means and smoozing the people of Israel, he has convinced most of the nation to follow him and no longer follow his father. David has to leave the city named after him, the city of David. He has to leave Jerusalem. He has to get out of there for the sake of protecting his own life and the lives of those that were dear to him. We're going to pick up just as he was leaving the city. Chapter 13, or verse 13 of chapter 15. Listen to what the Bible says. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Absalom is his son. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Now you got to appreciate this. 
David is not only leading them out of the city, but because he is King David, he is protecting the back trail too. He would be the last one to step out. All of them passed by. He remained there at the gate. And he greeted all of them as they went, but they were all going with him. David has moved from the front of the column now to the back. He's doing what a king would do. In verse 18, here's what we read. Or verse 19, I'm sorry. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. Now, are you catching what's happening here? David's standing at the back of the column at the city gates, and all these people are passing by him. And now here comes Ittai the Gittite. And David says, what are you doing with us? We haven't eaten much salt together. We don't have this type of relationship. I don't even know where I'm going. And Ittai says to him, wherever you go, be it unto life or death, I will go with you. I believe in you. I believe that you are the king. In that moment, Ittai the Gittite brought something unique to David's life. He was completely defeated and didn't believe that he would ever be king again. And here's this foreigner from a distant land saying to him, I believe in you. This non-salty relationship brought that back to the forefront of his mind. So David said, come on, let's eat salt together. You come on, we need to spend some time with one another. So Ittai traveled with him. Or, yes, Ittai traveled with him. Then picking up in verse 24, we meet a couple of other people. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz your son and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. These two salty friends of David brought the ark of the covenant to him and reminded him of God's presence. They reminded him that God had given him all these victories. Their intent was to take the ark of the covenant wherever David went, but David, because he was King David, said, you take the ark back, it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to Israel, it isn't mine. It belongs to Israel. That is God's presence. And they did. They did what David said. Later on, we will find out in the story that they come to bring him word that it's time to return. But in the meantime, they reminded him of God's presence. 
Ittai the Gittite reminded him that people believed in him. And now we have Abiathar and Zadok reminding him, God believes in you. He's given the victory. Remember that. They brought God's presence to him. Then we go on. Verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people were with him, covered their heads. And they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Athpoel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Athpoel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in times past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Athpoel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priest with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priest. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahamaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. So here we have Hushai rising to the top, bringing with him a message of extreme loyalty to David. You heard that when David was climbing that mountain, his head was down. His clothes were torn. He was covered in dirt. He was totally, totally defeated. And this salty friend of his, Hushai, comes to him and says, I'm with you, David. I am with you. Whatever you need, I am with you. And David said, what I need more than anything is for you to go back into the city. You go back and you pledge your loyalty to my son, Absalom. You be there and watch out for me. And that's what he did. Hushai went back into the city. And you know why? Because the Bible says this of him. Verse 37, Hushai, David's friend, his salty friend. They had eaten a lot of salt together, a peck of salt. And so Hushai could say, I will do what you need me to do. When he goes back into the city, he hears of Absalom's plan. And, and by hearing of that and being able to speak into that plan, he saved David's life. Going back into the city was the best move that he could have made. And it brought about great effect in David's life. He was David's salty friend and was watching over him every step of the way. You can read about that in the next chapter, how Hushai saved his life. But I want to take you to another spot, the end of verse 17, where you meet some more friends, salty friends of David. This is verse 27 of chapter 17. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi the son of Nahash from Reba of the Ammonites, and Maker the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. I want to take you guys on a little path of biblical geography here. This is incredibly important, so follow me all the way through this. When David was talking to Ittai, he said to him, why do you come with me? Because I know not where I go. He didn't have a plan when he was leaving the city of David. But here we are two chapters later, and we know that he has arrived at Mahanaim. Mahanaim 
is the place that Jacob wrestled with God. Jacob named it Mahanaim. That's where David decided to go. Now, why would David go there? You have to ask that question. Why Mahanaim? Of all places, why Mahanaim? Because his personal life was a mess. His home life was a mess. His political life was a mess. He was defeated. He didn't have anything left, so he went to a place to wrestle with God. And these three friends show up with all the provisions needed to take care of the thousands of people with him so David could be undistracted in the purpose for which he went there. You wrestle with God, David. We'll take care of everything else. You just take care of the business you need to take care of. You are in Mahanaim. You wrestle with God. And David did. He needed to. He needed to work some things out. Now, I would love, I would love to know what happened between chapter 17 and chapter 18, but the Bible doesn't tell us. However, when chapter 18 starts, it is obvious to us that God has lifted his head. He's got David back in a place where he's ready to do what needs to be done. And this is where we meet Joab, a salty friend. Here it is, verse 1. And David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. Remember, he hadn't eaten a lot of salt with Ittai, but now he's a commander in his army. And the king said to them, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. As you go on in chapter 18, here's what you will discover. The tides turned on Absalom because God was with David's army. God had always been with David's army. Joab was one of the leaders of David's army. God had been with Joab. They chased the armies of Israel down. Absalom was a part of them. Absalom got himself in trouble when his mule ran him underneath a tree and his head got stuck there. Joab heard about it and killed him. He killed him. Ran him through with a spear. Now, do you remember David saying to the commanders, you deal gently for my sake with my son Absalom. That was Joab's response. He killed him. He took care of the rebellion. Joab is this warrior of warriors that we find in the Bible. He, he's the kind of guy Hollywood ought to do a movie on. He's absolutely amazing. Some people have actually said, in fact, it's within Jewish tradition that King David would have never been as successful as he was in the exploits that he carried out had it not been for Joab. The tradition says, or at least the mythology that surrounds Joab, he never lost a fight. He never lost a battle. When Joab went into battle, Joab won the battle. He was that strong, that courageous, that bold. In fact, there is a tradition listed in the Jewish encyclopedia that says Joab had led his army against the Amalekites when he had 
got them all contained within a city. They tried to get into the city for six months, but they couldn't. The enemy was too strong. So all of the Israelite soldiers were somewhat discouraged and they wanted to go home, but Joab rallied them and he said, no, no, it isn't time to go home yet. This battle isn't finished yet. You stay with me. But of course, they were thinking nothing's going to change. We've been here day after day after day. Let's go home. So Joab said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put me in a trebuchet and I want you to throw me over the wall. I want you to put me on the inside of the city and you give me four months. You give me four months. And when you see blood flowing from underneath the gates of the city, then you charge. So they did because Joab said that's what he wanted. They put him in the trebuchet and they flung him over the wall. The tradition says that when he landed, he was dead. He was revived by the widow that lived in the home whose yard he fell in. He stayed there to recover for however long that was. When he fell, he broke his sword. Jewish tradition says he went to a blacksmith inside the city walls and had him make a sword like the one that had broken. It took three tries. The first two broke. And then he finally got it right. Joab held it in his hand and he said, this is the one. With that sword, he went and defeated 500 of the soldiers inside the city. By himself, he killed 500 of their warriors. He went back to the house where he was staying and his hand was literally welded to the sword. He couldn't open his fingers and let go of that sword. So he asked the lady to give him warm water, I'm guessing to soak his hand in and try to, to loosen it up. And she said, why would I do that? I've taken care of you. I've nursed you back to health. I've fed you all these weeks and you go out and kill my people. So Joab, because he was Joab, tradition says, ran her through with that sword. And then his hand healed the minute that he killed her. He grabbed the sword and he went to the city gates. And are you ready for this? There he, on his own, defeated 1,500 warriors and their blood flowed underneath the gates of the city. And the Israelites charged the gate and they came in and defeated the enemies of God. That's the tradition that surrounds this guy. David needed him. He was bold. My goodness, Joab was bold. That's why he could say things like this in, in 2 Samuel chapter 10. 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 12. As he was getting ready to lead his army back into battle, he said, Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. That was Joab's way of saying, If we live, we live. And if we die, we die. But we're going down swinging on God's side. He said, I've made a plan and I'm moving forward with that plan. If you're with me, let's go and let the Lord be good to us, whatever that is. Courageous man, courageous man. So I found myself as I was studying Joab's life, shifting the title of the message again away from courageous friends because my focus wasn't on David. I wanted it to be on Joab and I wanted you to see this type of courage that Joab had. And of course, that had me defining the idea of courage. And I went to where everybody would go, John Wayne, to find the right definition. Maybe you remember John Wayne saying that courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. That's courage. If you've heard that statement, honk your horns, flash your lights. That's not what defined Joab. That's not what defined Joab. We found it. 
in First Samuel chapter, or Second Samuel chapter ten. Look at it again, verse twelve. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people, for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to Him. It wasn't just courage that defined Joab. It was good courage. So I changed the title of the message again as it was, was morphing into something I hadn't expected. When you are seeking a homeland, you will need good courage. And I had no idea at the time where that was going to end. I just wanted to start in Joab's life and look at what good courage really is. And this is it. Good courage is courage like John Wayne would define it, being scared to death and saddling up anyway. It's bravery and boldness measured by faith. And that's what Joab was teaching. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So I went on a word study of good courage in the Bible. Found out that it shows up five times. The idea of good courage shows up five times in Scripture. And it's really quite interesting where it comes from. And each time we see that it is courage measured by faith. And that was Joab. Courage measured by faith. And he used that bold courage, this good courage, to support what David needed because he was a salty friend of David. I'm here, I'm here, king, whatever you need, I'm here. You just put me in the game and I'll do what you need me to do, but I will follow what God has put on my heart. Good courage. Well, the first time that it shows up, if you have your app opened, you can take a look at this and see it for yourself. The first time that the idea of good courage shows up is in Moses' story when he is sending the, the spies into the promised land to take a look and see what's there. Twelve of them went in. And he tells them, you go in good courage into the promised land. Well, two of them did. Ten didn't. Ten refused to. But two came back with one of the byproducts of good courage. They came back having seen the promises of God. Good courage does that for us. It opens our eyes to see the promises of God. The next time good courage shows up is in Joshua's story. When Joshua is told by God to go in good courage into the promised land, to lead people in good courage, courage measured by faith into the promised land. Good courage not only opens our eyes to see the promises of God, but good courage leads us squarely into the promises of God. Because courage measured by faith says, whatever the Lord has for me, that's what I want. That was Joab back in 2 Samuel chapter 10. He wanted everybody to understand good courage, courage measured by faith that you might experience the promises of God. Well, the next time that it shows up is in Joab's story, right there in the passage that we read. He was saying, whatever the victory is, is God's victory, so let's move into it. God's given us a plan, let's go. We can see the victory. It shows up the next time in the book of Daniel, when Daniel was in a dark season as well, wondering what the Lord had in store, not only for him, but for everyone. And the angel came and spoke to him and strengthened him, the Bible says. In Daniel chapter 10, that's exactly what we read. Through good courage, Daniel was strengthened. Good courage strengthens us for the fight that lies ahead. 
Good courage allows us to see victory even when the odds are against us, Joab's story. But when we're looking at that, we know that we're moving into the promises of God because we've seen them. See how good courage builds? But then here's what I found that was so surprising, and Joab's story led me to this. When we are full of good courage, courage measured by faith, no matter what is happening around us, we will see the end goal. When we are living by good courage, heaven will be in our sights, and we will be reminded of what waits for us. Let me show you what I'm talking about. This is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Good courage refocuses us to get our eyes on what matters the most and to get our eyes on the finish line. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. And when we're seeking a homeland, that's the goal. To be absent in the body and present with the Lord. The moment you die, your life here ends. And the very next moment, it begins in heaven. That's what the Bible says. Good courage gets us there. Good courage gets us across that line because anything else can cause us to be weak. But courage measured by faith gets us there. And sometimes we need the example of Joab to remind us of that. Because you see, in Joab's story, after he killed Absalom, after he took care of the rebellion that was raging against David, David went into a period of mourning. Everybody knew it. David was so sad about the loss of his son and any father would be that the darkness got to a point where it was absolutely overwhelming for him. And then it became overwhelming for all of the Israelites. They were watching their king so upset about the loss of Absalom that he couldn't hardly function. And then his salty friend came to him. And only a salty friend could do this. In 2 Samuel chapter 19, this is what we read. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the king heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, 
Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. That is a part of Joab's story that no one else could have filled. No one else could have gone to the king and said what he said. Did you catch it? Here it is, paraphrased for you. David, knock it off. Absalom is dead. You are grieving for your son who tried to kill you and is still trying to kill you or would be if I hadn't taken care of him. And all of your people are seeing it and you have brought shame on us. Now stop it. Just stop it. Lift your head and act like a king. That's what Joab said to him. That's Phil's paraphrase of it. Now, who else could do that besides a man who said, launch me into the city and I'll take care of it? Who else could have done that except a salty man who would say, however this ends, it ends, but God is on our side. This was a man who had good courage to the point that he was willing to confront the king and get the king refocused. So let me speak to you today. If you're in a dark period, lift your head and have good courage. You let God, through good carriage, open your eyes that you might see His promises. And once you have, through good courage, you let Him lead you into those promises by doing what He has said. You allow God, through good courage, to show you the victory, even when it looks like the odds are against you. You have enough good courage to trust that God will strengthen you like He did Daniel. And then you have a good enough courage or a good courage enough that you can see the end result, which is the only thing that matters, that you cross the line into heaven to hear the Lord say, well done, my good and faithful servants. Welcome home. It takes that type of courage, the good courage of Joab to get there. And hopefully if it is so dark around you, you will have salty friends that will tell you to lift your head, to knock it off, And act like a king, because the Bible tells you that the time will come when you will reign beside Christ. When your inheritance is the same as that of a prince, lift your head and do what needs to be done. Get through the dark days that you might live in the light, and you do it with good courage. Because good courage changes your vision. Good courage does amazing things for us. Joab knew that. You be courageous. As you study all the way through Joab's life, you'll find out that he needed good courage at the very end. After David had died and his son Solomon rose to the throne, David instructed Solomon that he would have to, for political reasons, take Joab's life. Joab, this warrior of warriors, went into the temple, tabernacle. He grabbed hold of the horns of the altar, and that's where he died. His name meant fathered by God. That's what Joab meant. And he died holding on to the horns of the altar. It's an amazing story. And tucked away in all of it is this great teaching about good courage. 